Luke 2, excuse me, 8 through 20. <clears throat> and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth pray peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sophie. What we've been doing throughout Advent leading up to Christmas is we've been looking at the classic Christmas story of the birth of Jesus that you find in the early chapters of Luke. And uh, this morning is, is another one of this, just the famous iconic pictures, this picture, the scene of the angels appearing to the shepherds announcing the birth of Jesus. This, this, this is such an iconic image. I mean, verse 14, you see on Christmas cards all over the place and memes and shows up in TV shows and uh, songs even. I mean, the, the song that, we, that we're going to sing here in a little bit, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is based off of this story because the angels in this uh, story, they're heralds. They're showing up making an announcement. This is a, they're, they're making a public announcement, a, a PSA, as it were. You think about announcements, there's, um, there's a lot of announcements that are just kind of innocuous, you don't even really pay attention to. Um, so, you know, you picture uh, uh, the pilot in a plane um, making the announcement, oh, we're going up to 30,000 feet and traveling southwest and the winds are coming in from, you know, it's like no one cares. No one pays attention to that. Uh, or another example, um, the Redeemer Friday emails, you know, we sent out and nobody reads those. I think three of y'all do. Um, but there are some announcements that, uh, that totally change your life, change the whole trajectory of your life. Announcements like you're clear of cancer or it's a girl or you got the job here are these shepherds, and they get this announcement that is utterly life-changing for them. They're just going through the motions. They're doing their life. They're just kind of doing their thing, and they get this announcement that turns everything upside down. And by the end of the story, you see them uh, radiating with life-changing joy. And I think this announcement, it has the power to transform your life as well. It has the, it has the power to transform my life as well if we will let it. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this announcement really under three headings. I want to show you how this announcement, uh, first, it challenges our doubts. 
Second, it uh, reverses our hostility. And third, it demands our attention. So that's the roadmap of, for, of where we're going this morning. That's what I want to show you about this, this announcement, this birth announcement. It, um, it challenges our doubts, reverses our hostility, and it demands our attention. First, it challenges our doubts. Well, uh, the passage right before this is the passage that we looked at last week. This is where you have Jesus being born. And again, it's that iconic scene of the manger and Joseph and Mary and little baby Jesus because they're, you know, they're in the manger because there's no room in the inn. But verse 8 tells you, nearby there were some shepherds tending to their flocks at night. So you just picture the scene. It's dark outside. It is uh, quiet. It's in the middle of the night. I mean, we just sang the song. It came on a midnight clear, so we don't know exactly what time. Maybe it was midnight, but whatever. It's, uh, the shepherds are possibly... Uh, exhausted. They're, they're, they're trying to protect the sheep, but they're, maybe they're nodding off. They're fighting back sleep. And then like an atomic bomb, this angel appears. This glorious, thunderous, radiant angel shows up, and they freak out. They have this, you know, near heart attack meltdown, and, you know, it's, it's this angel. And the angel reassures them, you know, fear not, I'm not, I haven't showed up to annihilate you. I've showed up to give you good news. You see that in verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy. And here, here's the announcement, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the big announcement. The Christ has born. Uh, uh, the Savior is here. The Lord has actually shown up, and he's right over there in this... Uh, you know, manger right over there. And then suddenly, right after that, a multitude of angels appears, and they're thundering this message. They're all singing, praising God, verse 14, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And you can imagine as the shepherds are sitting there taking this in, their hair is blown back, they're clutching their ears. It's kind of like they're standing behind a, an airplane engine. They're just, they cannot even process what is happening. And then just like that, all the angels go away. The silence returns. Their ears are still ringing. They're looking at each other in disbelief going, what in the world just happened? Now, you hear the story, and you might think, okay, that's why I can't really hop on board with Christianity. It's stories like this. You think, I love the spiritual teaching in the Bible about forgiveness and love and caring for the poor and turning the other cheek and not being judgmental. All of that's great. I'm into all of that. But this, angels, feels a little um, fabricated, feels a little hard to believe. What, what feels a little bit like somebody just kind of made this up. And if that's where you are, I, I mean, that's fair. I get that. But here's what I want you to consider this morning. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this. I didn't know this either really until I had heard this before, but I did a, a deep dive on this as I was kind of studying for this. Um, when you think about shepherds, shepherds in Jesus's particular cultural context were thought of as being particularly shady Shepherds were seen as uh, thieves. They were untrustworthy. They were crooks. They were liars. They had a big reputation, big reputation. And um, I, did, I did some research. Like I said, I did a deep dive on this, and I found out that shepherds at this time, were they, they were denied civil rights. 
Uh, they couldn't testify in a court of law. One historian wrote this, quote, to buy wool, milk, or a kid from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. Religious leaders um, gave shepherds, uh, they were under this technical term called sinners, which was a, a designation for these are people that you don't associate with, these are people that you should avoid, these are unclean, they're not allowed in the temple. In fact, the, um, the Mishnah, which is the um, written record of the Jewish oral tradition, um, there's passages in there where rabbis are even wrestling with the fact that God compares himself to a shepherd in Psalm 23. <clears throat> you remember the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and they're wrestling with, okay, why in the world would he choose that metaphor? Because shepherds are distasteful. They're, they're wrestling with this. In fact, there's another place in the Mishnah where the, where the rabbis say, if a shepherd has fallen into a ditch and is dying, you're not obligated to help them out. And in fact, you shouldn't feel bad that you're not helping them out. So you think about kind of the reputation of a shepherd in this cultural moment. And then think about this. When a, when a publishing company is about to release a new book, they will tell the author, you need to find some other well-known popular authors or celebrities to endorse your book, to, to write a little blurb on it. That's why when you look at the book jacket, you have all these blurbs, these quotes from other big-name people that you recognize, or you have all these quotes or blurbs, these endorsements on the first few pages of, of a book. Well, the, the reasoning is because if somebody can lend you their celebrity, they can vouch for you, you gain a little bit more credibility. You're, you're, you, your book becomes more marketable. If you can be associated with somebody who has influence, then you're Gucci. People, people buy your thing, you're good. So here's the question. God has shepherds be the ones who is endorsing his message. And you think, why? Anybody with an ounce of PR instincts at all would say, this is a terrible marketing plan. This is not going to work. People are not going to believe you. And in fact, if you think about this, if you're just making this story up, if you're just right, if, you, if, if you're Luke, who's writing the Gospel of Luke, and you're just, you're, you want to just make stuff up to get people to believe your message, and so you're coming up with fabricated legends, big, splashy, supernatural stuff, you would never have included this. This totally undermines your case. It undermines your credibility. It's, it shoots you in the foot, as it were. In, in fact, if you think about the story, the shepherds, this scene plays no real important role in the overall story. I mean, if you cut it out, you just had Joseph and Mary and Jesus in, in, in the manger. You didn't have any shepherds. It, the story still goes on just fine. In fact, the shepherds themselves play no other role in the story. They never show up again. They don't, they don't appear later in the Gospel of Luke and circle back. This is their one moment. Why is this here? The only reason why it's in there. Is because it happened. It makes no other sense why it would be there in the first place. And if that means that this actually happened, that challenges our doubts. Because now we can't just roll our eyes at this. You can't just say, okay, well, this is a myth. This is a legend. This is weird supernatural Bible stuff. Okay, if this actually happened, then now we got to do business with the actual announcement. We have to wrestle with the thing that's actually being announced. So let's do that next. You see how this announcement, it challenges our doubts? But here's the second thing. When you think about the announcement itself, 
it reverses our hostility. And here's what I mean by that. Look at, um, if you look at verse 11, there's you get the announcement, a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. But the result of this child coming is what you get in verse 14. And here's the result. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The result of Jesus being born is glory to God and peace for those with whom he is pleased, which is another way of saying for those whom God's favor and his grace rests. In other words, one of the benefits of experiencing grace is that you get peace. Now, when you hear that word peace at Christmas time, that has a connotation, doesn't it? We think of a, a feeling. The feeling is uh, of a sentimental, nostalgic feeling. It's cozy. You're by the fireplace. You're in a sweater. You've got hot chocolate. That's the feeling that we think of. Peace. Isn't that what Jesus came to bring? Christmas spirit and yuletide cheer. Isn't that what he came to bring? Every scholar that I looked at in this passage all agreed that the peace that this is referring to is not a feeling. This is not talking about the peace of God, that place, you know, that idea that you, you hear at other places in the Bible that talks about, um, it's about contentment, it's about a calm. It's not talking about the peace of God, it's talking about peace with God, meaning like a peace treaty, like the war is over. Now, you hear that, and it, and, it, and it makes you think, okay, well, that assumes that there was a war then. And this is, this is one of the radical claims of the Bible. The Bible says that every single one of us showed up not at peace with God. This is, this is the radical and, and, and offensive claim of the New Testament, is that every single one of us showed up at war with God. In fact, there's, there's a passage in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. You can look it up and read it on your own. It says this, that the natural bent of our heart is deep hostility toward God. That's the word it uses, hostility. Now, you hear that and you think, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in God, but I don't know if I would say that's the feeling. Hostility toward at war with God? You may not believe in God, but you'd say, okay, I... I just don't believe in him, or I don't believe that there's a God, or whatever that is. I don't, uh, I just not, I'm not interested in the question. I don't care about the issue. And if that's you, I would like to gently push back for a second. And I want to encourage you to think this out. Uh, Thomas Nagel um, taught philosophy at NYU for years, um, atheist. Uh, came out with a book in the 90s uh, where at one por uh, portion of that book he's, he's um, uh, sharing about his disbelief in God and how he thinks about it. And here's, a, here's an excerpt from that book. He says this, quote, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. Now, 
I love how honest he is because here's what he just said. He's saying, okay, if there's a God, that means that I have, I am accountable to somebody other than myself. There's an authority. That's why he uses that word cosmic authority problem. There's authority other than other than me, which means I can't just live my life any way that I want to live it anymore. I don't want to live in a world like that. I don't want there to be a God because I don't want that kind of constraint. And he's saying this is not just a rare me thing. This is, is in his words, uh, this is not rare. This is, this is a universal phenomenon, which here's what I want you to think. If that's true, that deep down, we don't really want there to be a God. Don't you see that's, that's not a neutral position. That is a, that's, that's a hostile posture. If I looked at you and said, I don't want you to exist, that's hostile. Now, let me put a little bit more color to this. Um, it's Christmas time, so we're all watching uh, Home Alone. In fact, as I was leaving the house this morning to come here today, our children were watching Home Alone two hours ago, as it were. Um, but it, you, you remember the scene, you know, you remember the movie. Uh, early on in the movie, uh, Kevin McAllister comes downstairs and he realizes that his family is gone. They've disappeared. And, you know, the night before, he was so angry with his family. He was punished. He was sent to his room. And he says, you know, I wish I didn't have a family. And uh, the next morning, he wakes up and he comes downstairs and his family is completely missing. And he thinks that his wish has come true. He's made his family disappear. He thinks that, um, you know, obviously, of course, they've just left him. Which, by the way, total side note, um, I just found this out like three days ago that there's a scene in Home Alone when, when he, Kevin McAllister's arguing with his buddy Buzz and you know they knock over all the drinks and the uncle's wiping up all the drinks on the counter. There's a quick little scene where, they, where he, Kevin McAllister's plane ticket is on the thing and it gets wiped up and thrown in the trash. It's a split second. You look in the, in the, in the trash can, Kevin plane ticket is in the trash, which explains why when they go to the airport, there's like, wait, wait where's Kevin? Brilliant. Anyway, total sidebar. Um, but the moment is, okay, so here's Kevin McAllister. He comes downstairs. He's sitting at the table, and he says, I made my family disappear. And he's shocked by that. But then he starts thinking. All the images start replaying of all of his siblings and his uncle and everybody else. There are voices of how mean they were, of how, how much they were bossing him around. And then it starts to dawn on him, I made my family disappear. And he smiles and he does that like weird eyebrow thing. And then the music comes on and he's running around the house. Ah, I'm free. And he's jumping up and down on the, on, the, on the bed and he's eating popcorn. He's going through Buzz's private stash and getting fireworks. And he's eating all the ice cream. He's, he's losing his mind. You know what he's doing? He's celebrating the fact, I don't have anybody to tell me what to do anymore. I can live my life however I want to live it. It's amazing. The Bible is saying that instinct is inside of every single one of us. We showed up in the world not wanting there to be a God so that we can do whatever we want. We don't want there to be a God. And in fact, if you want historical proof of this, when God showed up, what did we do? We murdered him. We don't want him. Now, you hear that, and you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're talking about the God-hating immoral people. Not me. I love God. I follow, I try to follow the rules. I try to do the right thing. I try to be a good person. This is, you're not talking about me. You're talking about somebody else. Well, think about this. 
In Jesus' most famous story he, he ever told, in Luke chapter 15, called the parable of the prodigal son, which is a, uh, it's mislabeled because it's a story really about two sons, not about one son. There's a younger son and an older son. And the, the younger son goes to his father and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And the dad gives him his cut of his inheritance. He gives him his money. And once he has his money, he leaves. And he pieces out and he lives his life however he wants to live it. And this is Jesus' way of saying this is a picture of the non-traditional approach, the non-religious approach to God. I don't want to be around God. I'm going to leave the Father. I'm going to leave and go off and do whatever I want. I don't want you. I'll take your stuff, though, and I'll enjoy my life apart from you. But you have an older brother, and he doesn't leave. He stays, and he doesn't break all the rules. He follows all the rules, and this is Jesus' picture of a religious person, somebody who follows all the rules and obeys the Father, does everything right. He's the good kid, but not because he wants the Father, not because he loves the Father, you find out at the end of the story that he's doing all this stuff. He's jumping through all the hoops. He's being a good little boy so that he can get the stuff, so that he can, he can get the father to be obligated to give him what belongs to him. And the brilliance of the story is Jesus is showing you non-religious people and religious people, and he's saying they're the same. Deep down, they don't want the father. They just want his stuff. Some of them peace out, want nothing to do with him, and then some of them stick around and try to manipulate him and try to use him and try to jump through the hoops to obligate him into giving them what is theirs. And he is saying they're the same. They're both at war with God. Neither one wants the Father. And so the good news of Christmas is that Jesus shows up and here is this announcement that he has come to end the war. He's come to announce peace. In fact, as we're going to sing here in just a moment, uh, hark the herald angels sing, peace on earth and mercy mild. What kind of peace is it? God and sinners reconciled. That's the peace. Reconciliation is when you have two parties that are estranged from each other and they're brought together. That's what Jesus came to do, to end the war, to make friends out of his enemies, how does he do it? Well, look at where he is in the story. Here you have the God of the universe, the one who governs all of the galaxies, and he's in a Middle Eastern barn. He is, he is being born into poverty to, to teenage parents. Here is somebody who has given up all of his glory. He has lost all of his glory. Do you know why? So that despised shepherds could have it. So that a poor teenager like Mary could have it. So that uh, neurotic, insecure, approval addicts like me could have it. So that whatever you and your issues are, you can have it. That's why Jesus came. And he didn't just lose all of his glory. But as he grew up, he lost his family. He lost his reputation. He lost his life. He lost his God. On the cross, Jesus is being abandoned by God, thrown out from God's presence so that you can be brought in so that you and I could be reconciled. He's losing his life so that you could get life. That's why he's here. When you see that is what Jesus has done for me, that's how he treats his enemies. You know what that starts to do? It starts to reverse your hostility to where now you don't 
you're transformed from wanting nothing to do with God and wanting to simply use God to answer your prayers and give you the life that you think that you should have into somebody that actually just delights in him for his sake, to worship him. That's what he came to do. God and sinners reconciled. Now, last thing, and I'll say this quickly. This announcement, don't you see, it challenges our doubts, it reverses our hostility, and then here's the last thing. It also demands our attention. If you look at how the story ends, after the shepherds, they, they get this announcement, they go and they find Mary, and they find Joseph, and they find the baby, and um, they relay to them and, and others around them what they had just heard. They relayed to them the announcement about the angel and the, and the, the, the baby and the, the choir and the, all of them and the peace and the glory and the whole bit. And look at verse 18. It says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They, they were in wonder. They were amazed. Whoa, that's insane. They're blown away. But look at Mary. You get this contrast in verse 19. It says, but, so you see that contrast, but Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She goes beyond superficial amazement. When it says that she pondered these things, that's, that's a cognitive response. That is, you're chewing on this, you're thinking it through, you're processing it, you're, you're mulling it over. When it says that she treasured these things, that's an emotional response. It's not just, I'm, I am processing information. She's, uh, she's relishing this. She's delighting in this. And what, what Luke is doing is he's lifting her up as the model that's the appropriate response to this announcement. This story of Christmas, it demands that type of reaction, that sort of reflection to think about it, to work it out, to, to ask the questions and to treasure it, to ponder it, to think it through. Because the reality is, is that's what actually transforms your life in the long run. You know, if you think about the, um, you think about the 4th of July and you go to a fireworks show you sit there with your lawn chair and the music's playing and the fireworks are going off. I mean, it's awesome. Firework, a fireworks show is incredible. You could be mesmerized, transfixed, whoa, taking it all in. And then you go home and you wake up the next day and you go to work and you never think about it again, at least until a year later. A fireworks show is awesome. It changes nobody's lives. But if you think about a good story, you watch a good movie, you read a good book, you hear a good story, it lodges in your imagination and you can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop replaying the scenes in your own head. You wanna reread the books, you wanna rewatch the movies. In fact, you talk about it with other people and you start to, as you're talking, you hear other people caught different things that you didn't catch and you start to pick up different pieces of the story and it's, it's way deeper than you thought it was, it's way richer than you thought it was, it's moving, it transfixes you. Here's my point. You can relate to Christmas like it's the 4th of July fireworks. And it's fun. This is a fun season. Who doesn't like to get dressed up like a flight attendant on Christmas Eve? How fun is it to open up uh, Amazon packages and to drink eggnog at the office party and to drive around looking at Christmas lights, drinking hot chocolate? It's, I mean, it's fun. It's awesome. And if you relate to this season like that, you'll wake up on December 26th 
and your life will have not been changed at all, and you won't think about it again until next year. Or you can think about Christmas as the greatest story that's ever been told, and you ponder it, and you ask questions of it. What kind of a God would personally into darkness and show up in a chaotic world? How dire must the problem be in order for God himself to show up? How loved must I be in order for God to come for me? You ponder it, and you treasure it, and you work out all the implications. That has the power to transform you. You know, it is not lost on me that this time of year can be particularly poignantly hard for some people. This is the season, especially if you've experienced grief or a loss, where all of the reminders, all of the holiday stuff, it triggers the loss, it triggers the people that aren't around the table anymore. It, 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 this can feel like a crushing season, especially when the merriment and the jolliness and the festivity of it all is just kind of forced on you, and you feel like, I've got to participate in the festivities, and you're dying on the inside, and you feel utterly alone. I want you to think, ponder Christmas. You know what Christmas tells you? Christmas tells you, even though you feel like you are alone, you are not alone. That's what, that's what Christmas is. It is God coming for you. He is with you. That's why he's come. That's why we celebrate all this. Now, that doesn't make the sadness and the grief and the loneliness disappear, but it might reframe it for you to begin to actually think, okay, I matter to him. Out of a world of billions and billions of people, he knows my name. I matter enough to him for him to come for me, and he thought it well worth the trip. Regardless of where you are and how you feel on this Christmas Eve, I want to encourage all of you, don't sentimentalize this day. Don't sentimentalize this season. Don't make this about nostalgia and tradition. Ponder this. Treasure this. Think this through until you might actually find yourself becoming like the shepherds in verse 20. Glorifying and praising God for all that you have heard and seen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would take this announcement, the announcement of Christmas, the arrival of your son, a son that has showed up in our world on a rescue mission. I, pr I pray that that news would not just be lost on us, that we would not grow numb to that, bored with that. I pray that it would energize us in a new way. Even this season, even this day, Father, would you take your good news and inflame our hearts and captivate our imaginations afresh Show us your love for us in a way that is staggering and might actually activate our souls to worship and to glorify you, that we might get more caught up in your glory and in your name and your, uh, who you are more than all the extra stuff that comes along with this season. Only you can do that in our hearts, so would you do that? Would you be so kind as to take this message, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, drill it into our hearts, and transform us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.